Good morning. Your own inspiring deeds shall be every tongue, and I will proclaim your greatness. Please look on the back of your worship folders. Uh, we have prayer slips if you want to put one in for the day, or you can hand it at the end, and I pray for them during the week. We also have uh, all these opportunities for your growth during the week. Um, and right now, also, uh, I think the women's IHOP study is still meeting on Mon the first Monday of the month. Or no? Not yet. Okay. Um, I have to re rearrange that. But everything else is the way it is on the bulletin. And then also, too, uh, remember to share the harvest with our lobby. We have the drop-off for food donations and also the change for the baby change. And um, <clears throat> I was back in New Jersey, and this was a picture of the falls, Pesake Falls, they call it, out of, in Patterson, New Jersey. And this is where Benjamin Franklin began to work on some of the power things uh, that we enjoy today. And the Word of God says, But those who drink the water that I will never be thirsty again, it's because of fresh, bubbling spring within them, giving them eternal life. Let's continue in our worship and let's stand and sing, How Great Thou Art. How Great Thou Art was originally written by Carl Boberg in 1885. The song we now know was translated by Stuart K. Hine in 1949. When he did his translation, Hine set it to a Swedish folk melody and arranged that melody to fit his words. The scripture reference for this popular hymn is Psalm 48.1, Great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. Awesome wonder, consider all the world's hands have made. I see the stars, I hear the rolling thunder. Son not sparing, sent him to die, respect him, take him. That on the cross, my burden barely buried, he bled and died to take him. Then sings my soul. My Savior God to thee. How great thou art! How great thou art! Then sings my soul, my Savior God to thee. How great thou art! How great thou art! 
Christ shall come with shout of acclamation and take me home. What joy shall fill my heart? Then I shall bow in humble adoration and My soul, my Savior, God, to Thee, how great Thou art, how great Thou art, then sings my soul, my Savior, God, to Thee, how great Thou art, how great I was looking around for Howard, but they said I don't have to do the solo later, so. <laughs> Join me in this morning's prayer confession. Almighty God, in this moment of focused encounter with you, we realize our sinfulness as we gaze upon your purity. When we play back the tapes of our thoughts this week, there have been moments that we have had revenge, anger, and prejudice towards others who have crossed our line. We admit there were times our emotions drew us down into a deeper level of sin than we ever thought we could go. We confess the words that we have said embarrass us to know that you heard them. Every time we contemplate your purity, we are appalled with a new self-awareness of how much our sinful nature still has a grip on us. Today, again, we are keenly aware of our need for your mercy and grace in our lives through Jesus Christ, who has assured us that we are forgiven. Amen. Our assurance of forgiveness this morning comes from 1 John chapter 2, verses 1 and 2. My dear children, I am writing this to you so that you will not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate who pleads our case before the Father. He is Jesus Christ, the one who is truly righteous. He himself is the sacrifice that atones for our sins, and not only our sins, but the sins of all the world. Guidelines for living this morning comes from 1 John 2, chapters 3 through, 1 John chapter 2, verses 3 through 6. And we can be sure that we know him if we obey his commandments. If someone claims, I know God, but doesn't obey God's commandments, that person is a liar and is not living in the truth. But those who obey God's word truly show how completely they love him. That is how we know we are living in him. Those who say they live in God should live their lives as Jesus did. Let's continue our worship. Let's stand together and we sing every praise. Worship with one accord 
Every praise, every praise is to our God. Sing hallelujah to our God. Glory hallelujah is to our God. Every praise, every praise is to our God. Every praise is to our God. Every praise, every praise is to our God. Sing hallelujah to our God. Glory hallelujah is to our God. Every praise, every praise is to our God. God, my Savior. more than any 
so much more than anything. You alone are my strength, my shield. To you alone may my spirit yield. You Desire for I long to worship you. I want you more than gold or silver. Only you can satisfy. You alone are the real joy giver. by John Newton in 1779, and the tune is a traditional American melody which was arranged for this hymn in 1900 by Edwin Excel. The scripture reference for this great hymn comes from 
2 Corinthians chapter 9, starting from verse 8. And God is able to make all grace abound to you, so that in all things, having all that you need, you will abound in every good work. As it is written, he has scattered abroad his gifts to the poor, his righteousness endures forever. Father in heaven, we just give you praise and thanksgiving for all the blessings that you've given to us. We give you praise, just thank you for this amazing grace that we don't deserve, we can't earn it, and yet you freely give it to us, and you give us eternal life with that, and salvation, and the removal of our guilt and our sin, and we give you thanks for that. We give you thanks for all the blessings you've given to us to live in this world today, for the blessings materially and for the people around our lives that love us and for the joys that we share. Father, I pray that you'll take these gifts that these men and women give, Lord, and use it for your glory in this church and its ministry. In Jesus' name, amen. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved the wretch like me. But now I'm found Was blind But now I see T'was grace that taught My heart to fear And grace my fears relieved How precious did that grace appear the hour I first believed through many dangers toils and snares I have already come this grace that brought me safe come into the presence of the Lord in prayer. Father in heaven, we just give you thanks and praise for this opportunity today as brothers and sisters in Christ to be able to enjoy the blessings of life, to be able to enjoy one another. We thank you, God, especially for the joys that we've had these past couple of days. 
I pray especially, Father God, today for our country. You know the severity that it's at. We pray for our leaders to really grab hold of what this country was built on and made on. Of men who got on their knees and put together a constitution in prayer that built a civil a, a bill of rights for the glory of God. The people who came over here in the Mayflower, they came here to bring salvation to the Indians. These things sometimes we're not aware of, but Lord, they are so true. And I pray, God, that you will stir a revival in this country. That things will happen, Lord, that we will just be astounded by. Because, Father, we are so sad of what we're seeing morally, ethically, spiritually in our country. And what we're hearing, parents teaching children, and things that are being taught them, Lord, are not of you. Father, we lift up those who are in education, that you use them, glory, for your glory and your truth. I praise you about the little girl that several months ago tried to commit suicide in my brother's school district. And thank you, God, that there was an air conditioner that flipped her and she landed on her legs and not on her head. And that she's being tutored and her brain was not hurt, but her legs are being rehabilitated. We praise you, God, for that. And a little air conditioner that flipped her. We give you praise and glory and honor, Father, too. For our men and women who bravely keep us safe every day. For those, again, this week that have paid the ultimate price by giving their lives for policemen, firemen, EMS. Be with their families who grieve and keep them safe in the jobs that they do. We pray about our church as we're coming now to closure with the Reformed Church in America and we're moving on. I just pray, Father, you use this as a time to give glory to you and send a message, Lord, of the truth of the gospel through our church. We pray, Heavenly Father, too, for our brothers and sisters who want to be here but can't, for Bill and for Lucille and Joyce and Karen. I pray also, too, Father God, for those who have had grief. I think of the Greer family and the loss of his dad. I pray for, Lord, thank you for the healing that you've done, too, to Everett, and for Todd, I pray for his wife, Angie, who is battling her cancer, and Samantha, and Jason, and Jordan, that you'll be with them in their battles. I pray for Leanne and for her recovery from her knee surgery. I pray, Father, for Nick, who's got surgery coming up. Lord, that you bring healing and, and good results. I pray for a family friend of Tom Holmes who used to come here and for him as he is going through after having a stroke. We pray for those that we know that are addicts, those who are hooked, 
for Jordan, for Ryan, David, Eric, Ricky, Mitch, and others we know that we love and are allowing themselves to be crippled in their lives by this horrible addiction. And Father God, today I thank you for these folks that are here, for the challenges that they have in their lives. Lord, may they be the light and the salt in their place that you put them. And now, Father God, I pray as we come before your word that you'll speak to us what we need to hear. And it's in Jesus Christ's name I pray this. Amen. I don't know how many of you can remember the day. There were a couple of experiences that I had on my way to getting married. I remember the day that I had to go to see my wife's preacher. And the reality that we were actually getting married. And I'll never forget the day when the wedding was about to take place in Marion, Iowa. I had a good night's sleep and I got my tux on and we went over to the church and I sat in this little room with my best man. And then I went outside and spoke to a few people that were coming in in the parking lot. And then it struck me, this is serious business. This is overwhelming. That today I am making this commitment that I'm going to be with this woman for the rest of our lives until death parts us. The seriousness at first, for a few minutes, I just got a little anxiety. And I'm thinking, do I know what I'm doing here? 20, what was it, 23, 24 years old. And I can remember having a great time. And how quickly it went. But I remember those few moments that I questioned myself. And it wasn't because of her, it was because of me. And whether this thing we could last till death parts us. In fact, on our way home from our honeymoon, I had a pastor friend of mine give me a cottage in Massachusetts, in Chatham, Massachusetts. It's a by Hyannisport. And that's where we honeymooned. And on our way home, we stopped in New Jersey and my sister and mother had put together, and when I was in New Jersey, we went by it because we went to see the stadium that they regentrified, and some of the Yankees had come there to bring, but it's in a drug-infested neighborhood. But my brother was telling me my dad was a bat boy in the Negro League when he was a little boy and they'd give him a bat or give him a ball and a quarter for being the bat boy. And on our way back from that, we went by the brownstone, which is where my parents, my sister and mother had this thing and my dad for us, for all our relatives and friends that couldn't make it to Iowa for our wedding. 
And it brought back all these wonderful memories. In fact, outside my salvation, probably the greatest decision I ever made was asking Sandy to marry me. I don't know if she feels that way, but anyway, <laughs> that's the reality of that. In fact, uh, while I was away on vacation, because we had to take separate vacations into New Jersey, and I came back, and there was two things happened on my way back. Number one, the day before I got my the phone rang with my itinerary, and then another itinerary came that I landed at noon, and at 3.30, I had a doctor's appointment that I hadn't made. Okay. And then when I went into my office and it was cleaned. <clears throat> and so I prayed for about an hour and a half on that one. That's what marriage does. But this morning, Jesus comes to us. And he's been tough. We all know. Jesus started with his baptism. He was declared the Son of God, which we know he's God in the flesh. And right after that, he got away in the desert for 40 days and was tempted by the devil. We know that he withstands all kinds of assaults from the devil. But then we moved on to the third part. Jesus then pulled his disciples aside. Augustine calls it the Sermon on the Mount, but really it was basically the discipleships for the disciples. And there were people listening, especially the Pharisees. But then Jesus begins to talk, and he starts with the third person. He said, blessed are you who are poor, poor in spirit, that we know our poverty of sin and how we need Christ to save us. And that blessed when we mourn because we mourn over our sin. And that we're going to be persecuted for this kind of counter life to the world. Then he moves to the second person. He says to us and points the finger at disciples and you and me and says, in the second person, you are the salt of the earth. You are the guys who are going to change and save this nation and world. You are the ones who are preservers. You are the light of the world, he said, the second phrase, which we expose the wrong and sin, not only by talking about it, but by the way we live. People are going to see we are very different. But then Jesus goes on and he starts talking about very, very sound preaching of how we're to live personally. And he really wants them to know it's different than all the rest of the world. It's different from the superficial Pharisees who did the thing that Moses said, but didn't take it any higher spiritually. And he says to his disciples and to you and me, your righteousness needs to exceed that of the Pharisees who just listened to that one portion of it, the physical part. And then he unloads. He says... You've heard it said, thou shalt not murder. But I say to you as God, this is what I really meant. That if you call somebody a numbskull or an idiot, it's just as if you murdered them. Furthermore, 
Thou, you've heard it said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you, if you have lust for a woman, it's like committing adultery. It is murder. And today, Jesus is no less ruthless and rentless because he wants a righteousness from us. And he doesn't let up. He's like a mad dog, so to speak. Showing us what real righteousness is and not the superficial baloney that we hear or see sometimes. And he comes and he says to us, your righteousness needs to exceed and you are to be perfect. As I and my father are perfect and we know we can't do it. This is why we know we need Jesus Christ. When we go according to Jesus scorecard here, we're flunking. And today is no different. And Jesus comes to us about the covenant of marriage. Something the Pharisees and the Sadducees played with like it was a toy. Because in the first century, that's what it was about. They had copied the ways of the world. In the ways of the world, some of the people of that day had 10, 12 divorces. And Jesus comes and he says... Whoever sends his wife away, and Jesus now breaks away from the commandments and talks about this concession because really the Pharisees were using divorce as a way to commit adultery legally. Whoever sends his wife away, let him give her a certificate of divorce. And Jesus misquotes that. And the reason he does is because he's showing them that they've really screwed it up. And the way they interpreted it. And that's why he says it the way he does. And he says, you're thinking, and that's what he's saying. You're thinking just because you have this piece of paper in your mind that you're cleared of it. He's saying, no, it's not. Because it comes out of 24 of Deuteronomy. So when a man takes a wife and marries her, and happens that she finds no favor in his eyes, and if you notice, it's the male-dominated society, because he has found some indecency in her, and he writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of the house. Now, Jesus really wants them to get this. Marriage is not a flippant thing. It's not a marriage of dissolving by just signing a few pieces of paper. And what Jesus wants them to see, this indecency means nakedness or sexual sin. And we know that in that day there were several schools of thought. One was Rabbi Hillel and the other was Shammai. They were the big scholars of that day. And Hillel was so flippant. With his interpretation of this concession of divorce. Because as it read, a man, the way he saw it, a man could divorce his wife if she burnt the toast for breakfast. Gone. There was another rabbi who was his follower that even went further than that. He said that if you find a woman that's better looking than your wife, you can write her a divorce. 
That's how flippant he was about marriage. And what we're seeing here, Jesus wants everybody to understand that it's a physical relationship that is exceptionally important to God. That when a couple gets married, they become one. They're not two separate, they become one. And it remains plural because God is over it. But their oneness is a physical thing. And when they were married, they made a solemn vow to God. In fact, during the ceremony, for a while there, they were taking a bull. And they would sever it. And they would split it with blood dripping on the floor. And the couple would walk through it and say, may this happen to us if our marriage gets severed, that we die. And we see in the Old Testament, the severity of it is early on in Leviticus, adultery was worth stoning, both the man and the woman. And the reason they could do that is so then the physical relationship was severed by death. And so the couple who was offended and was home, they could free to marry again because they wouldn't be committing adultery because that severing came because of death. And you see, Jesus is trying to get them to see that this is only concession. And what Jesus does, he wants us to see marriage from the right perspective. From Eden. From Adam and Eve. And that the seventh commandment is not only a mental thing. It's a physical severing that only death can take. And also God's declaring it so. But they were taking this concession that Moses made and making a joke out of it. So they can have their own desires met legally. See, this is what happens when people are legalistic. They're easily looking for the loophole. And this is what these folks were doing. And Jesus is saying to his disciples, no, this is not right. This is wrong. And that happy marriages are not accidents. They're a lot of work. And that we're to take marriage seriously and divorce seriously. And the ramifications, Jesus is going to say to us of a divorce, are catastrophic. But you see, when you're caught in that sin, when your eyes are focused on you and your selfishness, it can easily destroy what God has brought together. And that's why divorce was being abused in Jesus' day and is being abused in our day and age too. And the problem is not the commandments. The problem is the human heart. And Jesus wants to make this very clear. That it's not just a piece of paper. Jesus is condemning them. And saying this tendency is so wrong. This is not God's intention. He wants it to be right. And that the marriage bed is to be sacred. And that... When you go to a wedding, 
We don't go there just to say, well, we're friends of them and we're relatives of them and we want to just encourage them. Jesus is saying when they're making those vows in front of you and for me, he is saying that you are part of the solemnization of that marriage and that you and me as the audience we are standing and witnesses to the very fact of the commitment they're making to God and to each other. And marriage is not a human invention. This is God's plan. Later on in Ephesians, he says to us, marriage is, should be glorifying to God and it shows us what the church and the relationship to Christ should be. Is through marriage. And that's the way marriage is to be dealt with. But you know, there are people who just disregard that. We in this great feelings culture are destroying a very sacred thing. Oh, I just don't feel it anymore. You remember back in my day, some of you kids are going to laugh because you don't know what the song is, but... The righteous brothers used to sing, we've lost that love and feeling. Please. That's a Jesus smackdown right there. Jesus is saying, this is very important. Roman poet spoke about one woman that he knew had 10 divorces. Malachi, 400 years earlier, People were crying and couldn't understand why God wasn't accepting their worship. And Malachi said, it's because you're treating your wives terribly. You're divorcing like nobody's business. And divorce hurts not only your female spouse, but your children also. It's destroying them. And we in our culture today at Harvard Medical School Psychiatry... We say, well, it's a very bad thing for children, emotionally, physically, spiritually. Yeah, no kidding. Jesus said that a long time ago. And so Jesus wants to let them know, yes, there's a provision. And there are people today who are claiming to be Christians who are living together, trying it out. No, 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 no. That is not what God called for. God called for a man and a woman to make the solemn vow before him and before the believers in the congregation to witness and solemnize that glue until death parts. And when we hear, well, something offensive, <laughs> she burnt the toast. So a better looking woman down the street? Really? Jesus' kingdom is built on holiness. And marriage is to be the way in which we build each other holy together. That we are to love our wives as Christ loved the church and died for her emotionally, physically, spiritually. And that she's to respect the husband who's willing to lay his whole life down for her. 
That's Christ in the church. That's what is supposed to be seen in marriages. Paul talked about marriage as a gift from God. This beautiful thing that God has given men and women to live together and be a witness into the world. My sister and I were driving around this area of Patterson. Burned out, ugly area that our old church was in. How my mom and dad would go in there and help the kids. Minister there. Because the church saw an emblem of the love of Christ through two people who cared. And yet, a lot of times we see marriages treated as trivial. If I don't like it, I'm done. And that's why Jesus comes. Later on in Matthew chapter 19, he talks about marriage. Again, and divorce. But notice Jesus is going back to the Garden of Eden. Some of the Pharisees came to him, testing him and asking, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any reason at all? See, they're pushing Jesus' buttons. Jesus said, no problem. He answered and said, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? And for this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Notice the Bible is explaining it to us that God called them together to be joined and be one flesh. Not two people, one. And that they're no longer two but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. He is saying that it's so critical. This avenue of intimacy is so deep to God. And they said to him, well then why? Why did Moses command to give her a certificate of divorce and send her away? And Jesus unloads. And he says to them, because of your hardness of heart, Moses permitted you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning it has not been this way. You see, Jesus is trying to get them to see it wasn't God's deal. It was because men's sinfulness have Put wedges in between them. Have hurt one another. Have not loved each other. And marriage is difficult and hard at times. But you stay with it. This is what Jesus is talking about. About two committed Christians should be able to harness it. But when one's heart gets hard. We were in... A couple that I had led to Christ. Well, two different individuals that I led to Christ and then they wound up getting together on a team we called the God Squad. And we'd go out into drug-infested areas and talk to people about Christ. And this couple got married. In fact, there was a 10-year difference between them. She was 10 years older. 
She'd been married before, and then she had almost a breakdown. Came to know Christ. This other fellow had come to know Christ, which had been her student. And after she came to know Christ and they started working together as a team in evangelism, they realized they loved each other and they got married. And had a beautiful young daughter who, when I went back this week, it was such a promising career her husband had. They both loved the Lord. They had three kids. And what broke my heart is she said, but they found out that the son-in-law decided he was going to go a different way. And doesn't want to repent. Met somebody at work. And you see, Jesus is saying that hardness of heart, even though he claimed to be a Christian, even though he said he was born again, if you love me, you'll keep my command. He didn't. And instead walked on the other side. And Jesus is saying to us, kids, when, when we get married, this is not for kids. This is tough stuff. And good marriages aren't made by accident. And Jesus is saying here, it's not trivial pursuit. In fact, Jesus is saying it's a commitment of love, a commitment of loyalty, a commitment that cares for the best for your partner more than your own self. It's an act of totally giving away your selfishness to your other partner. But that's not our world, folks. <laughs> we know that, don't we? I stumbled on an article. <clears throat> which the title of it is oxymoron. It means it's opposite what it's claiming. And it was an article written by this guy by the name of Paul Hudson. And what he says is, his article is entitled, Only Eight Times Is It Excusable to Leave the One You Truly Love? That's what it's, the name of the article is. Truly love It's people, you're only able to leave a person when you who you truly love only because of these eight instances. One, because they clearly make you unhappy with that when you're in that relationship with them. Two, that the good times are outweighed by the bad. You know, folks, <clears throat> this is so ridiculous garbage because life has a lot of cuts and turns. And marriage takes commitment and love that sees beyond this stuff. That you don't see yourself spending the rest of your life with this person. That you lost trust in your partner. That the way they treat you, you don't deserve it. You deserve better. That you fell in love with somebody else. Or the one... I can't love my partner anymore the way they deserve. That's the world. And it's baloney. When I was in New York watching TV, the great previous mayor of New York, Mr. de Blasio, 
was big headlines that Tim and his wife were taking a break from each other. And they were going to still lay, stay in the mansion that they had, but they were going to invite other people into the, their lives and see how that works out. This is what young people have to see sometimes. And there are some adults who buy into this baloney. They don't understand what it's like to have a committed relationship. Helen Croydon, another writer in a big magazine called Atlantic. She did an article on how to, it's okay to ditch your first mate. In fact, over the lifetime of a person, that you could have several different mates that meet your needs at different, different points in your times of need, and when you're done with them, you get rid of them. This is the world. And that you can maybe even don't like the mate you have to have a child with, and so you have artificial insemination. This is how insane this stuff gets. And yet, folks, you've seen it here, and so have I. I saw it with my mother and father. Of the deep love and commitment and intimacy that goes beyond the puppy years of early marriage and goes through the years of 50, 60 years. And at the end of life, sitting by their side with tears in their eyes, knowing that their loved one is leaving this earth, that Jesus is calling them home. But the intimacy and love is so still there. I can remember my dad. As my mother was dying. Caring for her. Big. 6'5". 275 pounds. Having her in the living room. Gave her a bell. Whatever she needed. He was there for her. Here he was vacuuming, cleaning the house. Things she loved to do she couldn't do. And there he was doing it for her. And when she needed something, he would provide it for her. That's the love and intimacy that Jesus is talking about. That's deeper and richer. Not the just fuzzies of a early relationship and, and, and Jesus comes to us and speaks about this and talks about the permanency of this love not to be looking for the reason and the reason is because of their lack of commitment to give the divorce and how serious it is a lot of couples fall into this. If they don't watch it. I was explaining to my friend in New Jersey that as her son-in-law and daughter, things were going great. He had a very big career, was going to make tons of money. 
And they began to have a family. But what happens to a lot of couples? They don't continue to work on this, their friendship with each other. They don't take time for each other. Sandy and I try to take a day a week, usually it was Friday, to go out to eat or to do something. Even when the kids were younger. So we kept that friendship and that love and the support of one another in prayer. And to spend time with each other because kids and situations and money and second jobs and third jobs and trying to make begins to drain you. Begins to drain your mate. And sometimes we say, well, what's in it for me? And there's nothing. And then at the end of the last kid leaves the house, they either stay together just because they're together or they divorce because they're worn out. And they have nothing in their tank for each other or don't want to continue for the next 20 years with each other. And that happens here where you got to keep on working at it here. And then Jesus comes to us and says, you, this is serious stuff and the repercussions are very strong. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, and remember this is the male-dominated world that they were in, except for the reason of unchastity, makes her commit adultery. And who marries a divorced woman commits adultery. And what he's saying here is that you don't realize, but just because you threw that paper at her doesn't end that relationship. What you've done is you wrote a paper, but because she's divorced now, she has no leg to stand on, and she has to go out and find somebody to marry her, and she is also breaking the covenant of physical commitment to you when she has to do that. And you're causing, you, husband, are causing her to commit adultery. And you see, Jesus wants them to get to see how serious this is. And that what he's calling us to do as Christians is to commit to protect our marriages. Commit to working at marriage. I know when Sandy and I got married, one of the things we swore would never be in our vocabulary is the word D, divorce. Now, I remember hearing Mrs. Graham, Billy Graham's wife, when she was asked by a reporter because he was never home and he, she had the burden of raising all the children. The reporter said, have you ever thought about divorcing Billy Graham? And she said, no. I've never thought of divorce, but murder, yes. And because sometimes he did upset her. But you see, Jesus points us back to marriage. And he says, for this reason, a man shall leave his father and be joined to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. That only death can take it out. Only death can remove it.
And yet, as you go and you grow in your marriage and as you go along, 40, 50, I've been married for 46 years. And the ups and downs that we've gone through. But I've come to appreciate my wife and our marriage so much. We talked a couple weeks ago about what's it going to be like. And I wrestled with that and I talked to the Lord about, about what will it be like if she goes to heaven before me? What is that going to look like and how am I going to handle and adjust to that? How she's been such a help. They say the divorce rate on first marriages is 50%. People who get married and remarried at second time, it's 67% divorce rate. And the third time, it's 80%. That get married the third time. And that's not what Jesus wants us as disciples. Jesus wants us to love our mate. And we're to be committed to one another. And to be covenanted to one another. As Paul says, submit each other before Christ. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. Wives, submit yourself to this husband who loves you like Christ. Loved his church and died for her. Find joy. The other day, <laughs> my sister came back upstairs. She, she lives in an apartment above my niece and husband and family. And she said, I'm a little embarrassed. She said, I went downstairs because I heard her one grandson was home from college in Massachusetts. And she saw his car, and so she ran downstairs to see him. And she walked in on her grandson and his girlfriend. And she said, I felt so bad. Because they were on their knees, praying together and reading the word together and praying and asking Lord to give them wisdom and insight into their relationship. To know whether or not where they're to go from here with their relationship. See, that's what Christ wants from us. He wants us on our knees for each other and caring for each other. And being in those marriages that glorify God, that show 40, 50, 60 years, and love each other till death parts. That's what Jesus' point is today. Let's give him glory. Lord, we want to thank you for the privilege and joy that we have knowing you, Christ, as our Lord and Savior. 
and that you are the God who cares and understands us. And that, Lord, that we get those junctures in the road in our lives and that we dig in together in prayer and on our knees and work out our relational problems. We don't hide from each other. That we don't look for outward excuses with affairs of persons or work or hobbies to hide from them, but that we come with you in those situations on our knees together and have you guide us through them. I pray for all the marriages here today, for those who are here that are going to have future marriages someday, that they really hear Jesus say, let me be in your relationship with you. Help me walk through this treacherous road of marriage with you. And that you and your partner can give glory to God through that relationship that you have. And it's through Jesus Christ we pray this. Amen. Let's stand together as we share the benediction. And then also to our closing song. And now the God who commanded the light to shine out of darkness, shine in your hearts to bring the glory of Jesus Christ. Amen. Through.